We interrupt your regularly scheduled Drabblecast to bring you breaking news. I'm Connor Chodesworth with a Fox News special report. It looks like Bigfoot, if he exists, might be dead. Maybe. A pair of Georgia men faced more than a half hour of skeptical questions from reporters Friday as they defended their claim that they stumbled upon the body of Bigfoot while hiking in a remote North Georgia forest. The men say they were hiking in early June when they discovered the body of a 7'7", 500-pound, half-ape, half-human creature near a stream. Here in the studio with us, we have the two men who discovered the Sasquatch corpse, Matt Witten and Nick Dreyer, along with skeptic Tom Biscardi, the self-described real Bigfoot hunter, who has been searching for the creature of legend since 1971. Matt and Nick, let's just cut to the chase, shall we? Is Bigfoot really dead, as you claim? That is, assuming he was ever alive. Oh yeah, Connor. We got him up on ass at our trailer. So, Bigfoot exists. Well, I mean, he did. What do you think could have killed him? Probably the combined efforts of mankind's willful destruction of the fragile yet diverse biospheres that endangered species need in place in order to survive. Mixed with a little old age. Connor, if I can just jump in here, I've inspected plenty of fake Bigfoot corpses in my 15 years of research, and this is most definitely a hoax. Are you saying, sir, that Bigfoot is alive? Oh, oh, he's most definitely alive. Uh, If he's alive. Well, now, see, he ain't alive, because he's dead. I believe Mr. Biscardi meant he's alive if he's real, Matt. Oh, he's real, all right. But not really dead. Well, he sure as hell ain't alive, I'll tell you that much. Wait, wait, he, he isn't alive? Well, he may be. No, he is. Now, Matt, you just said he wasn't. I said he wasn't alive. Then how can he be dead? Well, the combined efforts of mankind's willful destruction of... Oh, okay, so you meant he's not alive because he's dead, if he's real. But he's not. He's not. Okay, Tom, you said earlier that he was. Well, he may be, but this one's not. Not real? Not alive. Not either. It's a hoax. Shit, you're a hoax. Well, I never. We're out of here. Well, there you have it. The Sasquatch is alive. If it's alive. Unless it's dead. But if it's dead, it's not a hoax. At least not one that we know about. Next up, does Barack Obama pee-pee through the slot in his boxer shorts, or does he pull them down from the front and pee over the top? Only on Fox News. Now back to your regularly scheduled Flash Fiction podcast. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 77. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, DragonCon is coming up at Atlanta, and all of us here at the Drabblecast are planning on heading over. We've got some fun stuff planned, which we'll go into on next week's show, but I did want to put the word out that we're planning on getting together with folks for some lunch and or drinking. If you're planning on going to Atlanta this year and you'd like to meet up, shoot us an email over at drabblecast at yahoo.com and we'll work it out from there. So on to today's story. Stick around after this week's story, by the way, to listen to a promo for a podcast novel that I've recently gotten into. This week's story is called Permanent Detention by Weldon Burge. You might remember Weldon from his stories Performance Anxiety and Sizzle that have been presented here on the Drabblecast before. 
His fiction has also appeared in Future's Mysterious Anthology magazine, Grim Graffiti, Alien Skin, Glassfire, The Edge, Tales of Suspense, and Out and About. So without further ado, Permanent Detention by Weldon Burge. I hate needles. Hypodermics. Anything involving sharp objects invading flesh. So even though most of my friends here have tattoos, nobody's going to inject ink under my skin. And body piercings? (laughs) Forget it, man. Makes my skin crawl. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I always screw up jokes, too. Tell the punchline before I even get into the story. It all started when Mr. Morrissey, my U.S. history teacher, caught me cheating. Permanent detention. You have to understand, I hated high school. I wasn't the academic type. (laughs) Doesn't mean I was dumb, just not a bookworm. I was the king of detention hall. All my teachers put me in the front row to keep an eye on me, keep me under their thumb. Morrissey had me dead center in front of his desk. You also have to understand that Mr. Morrissey's teaching was limited to turning on the classroom television, slipping a videotape into the VCR, and then hiding behind a newspaper at his desk for the rest of the period. Oh, he taught U.S. history, all right. He showed us the outlaw Josie Wales, the Civil War, Patton, World War II, and Apocalypse Now, what he called the Vietnam Conflict. (laughs) You get the drift. Problem was, his tests were based not on the movies, but on the textbook units he assigned. We never discussed this stuff in class. He never even cracked open the book. It was no surprise that most of us were failing his course. Anyway, Morrissey caught me glancing at Melanie Lambert's midterm exam. She was the class ace. I was the class joker. Front and center, Robert Jackson. Now. When I approached his desk, I could tell by the scowl on his usually expressionless, putty face that he meant business. Having trouble keeping your eyes on your own paper? No, sir. You realize I could have you kicked out of school for cheating? I wasn't cheating... As he began a tirade about my irresponsibility and lack of respect, I saw something black moving on the back of his tongue. It looked like a black jelly bean, the nasty licorice kind that everyone spits out. I only saw it for a second. What's your problem, Mr. Jackson? Why are you staring at my mouth? Uh, Nothing, no problem. I think you have a big problem, Mr. Jackson. You need the credits from this class to graduate. Judging from your poor grade so far this marking period, your diploma is in dire jeopardy. Does this disturb you, Mr. Jackson? There it was again. A small black thing moving in the back of his mouth, as if trying to avoid the light. Well, does it? Uh, Yes, sir. Then you better start minding your P's and Q's, young man. You've just earned a two-hour detention. I'll also be sending a letter home to your parents. Dad... What? My dad. My mom died four years ago. It's just me and my dad now. Whatever. To your father, then. Sit down. 
I gladly returned to my desk. The thing in his mouth had creeped me out. The rest of the week was uneventful until Friday, when my dad received Morrissey's letter and laid down the law. I've never seen you study for his class, Bobby. Do you even have the textbook at home? It's in my locker. Then how do you expect to pass? Were you cheating, like he said? Dad, he's out to get me. Did you cheat? I... I looked at someone else's paper, yes. Dad sighed, shook his head. I guess I let him down a lot back then. Well, I talked to Mr. Morrissey on the phone this afternoon. He sounds like a no-nonsense kind of guy, but he's willing to work with you, if you'll pull your own weight. You have detention after school on Monday. He will go through the textbook with you then and help you prepare for the next exam. If you ace the test, that would pull your overall grade to passing. You just have to keep your grades up until the end of the marking period. I don't want him to tutor me. You don't have a choice. You must pass this class, Bobby. If Morrissey wants you to wear a tutu and dance Swan Lake on top of your desk, better have your ballet slippers ready. If he's willing to tutor you during detention, you need to go. He... he scares me. What do you mean he scares you? Has he touched you or abused you in any way? Not yet, I thought. No, it's nothing like that. There's something not right about him. I don't care if he's got three eyes and tentacles. He's your teacher and you need to pass his class. Case closed. I had history first thing Monday morning. When I entered the room, I immediately noticed a sickly sweet sour smell like rotting apples. By the time I reached my desk at the front of the room, the odor was more like slimy spoiled bacon. The odor was coming from Morrissey. I turned to Melanie. Do you smell anything funny? She looked at me like I was a disease. Don't talk to me, Bobby, she whispered. You're nothing but trouble. That day's lesson was Dances with Wolves. Morrissey started the video, turned off the lights, then settled behind his desk with his morning newspaper. The television was in the far left corner in the front of the room. Morrissey's desk was in the far right corner. Once the movie started, no one paid attention to him. Except me. I kept glancing at him, wondering if that black thing would make another appearance. About an hour into the movie, most of the students were either asleep or fascinated with Kevin Costner. I looked over at Morrissey, who was still hiding behind the newspaper. Something black protruded from the corner of his mouth. He sucked it back in like a strand of spaghetti. The black thing, clearly alive, returned to the corner of his mouth, and this time managed to get a few legs out on his lip. It was a cockroach. It pulled itself from his mouth, perched momentarily on his lower lip, then zigzagged across his left cheek and disappeared into his ear. Morrissey didn't even seem to notice, just kept on reading the paper. A few seconds later, though, the roach crawled out of his ear. This time he slapped it as if it were a bothersome fly, but the roach darted to safety in his ear canal. When Morrissey's hand brushed his head, however, the earlobe seemed to rip loose. Behind the flap, I briefly saw pink-grayish meat, maybe even bone. Morrissey quickly pressed the ear back into place with a barely noticeable, moist thwip. He turned 
and his eyes met mine. Mind your P's and Q's, Mr. Jackson, he said, his face blank. Your eyes should be on the movie, not me. I turned to the TV, sweat beating on my forehead, my hands trembling. The bell for the end of the class period sounded. I had lunch with my best bud, Benny Lassiter, that afternoon. I wanted to ask him if he'd noticed anything different about Morrissey, but I figured he'd think I was flaking out if I told him what I'd seen. How do you tell someone, anyone, that you think your teacher's a bona fide member of The Walking Dead? Uh, you're into horror movies, aren't you? I said at one point in our conversation. You know, like zombie movies? Ah, oh, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Benny said. Yeah, man. So, uh... So how do you stop a zombie? Oh, you, you gotta take out the brain. It don't matter how messed up they are. Zombies don't stop till you scramble their brains. Why? I, I was just wondering. I was, I was watching Return of the Living Dead the other day, but I, I didn't see the ending. Oh yeah, that's a great movie for splashing brains. Uh, are you okay, man? You've been really weird lately. Not weird. Scared crapless. It's, it's just stress, I said. Morrissey's making me nuts. Yeah, he makes everyone nuts. Just cut that class. I can't. I need the credits to graduate. And because this is my senior year, I can't switch to another teacher. I'm stuck with Morrissey. I have a two-hour detention tonight, and I have to spend it with him. Oh, that's a real bummer. After school that day, Morrissey came to the detention room and escorted me to his classroom. I wanted so badly to skip out, to just run. But I knew I'd let my dad down if I didn't go through with this. Besides, maybe I was just imagining things. I wasn't getting much sleep lately. Maybe I fell asleep in class and dreamt the whole thing. We were alone in the classroom. He dropped a textbook on my desk, then stood directly in front of me, hands on his hips, eyes on mine. Tell me, Mr. Jackson... What is the significance of November 22nd, 1963? I had no idea. I shrugged my shoulders. Do you know who Lee Harvey Oswald is? The name sounded familiar, but I shrugged again. Tisk tisk, Mr. Jackson, he said as he walked past me and down the aisle between the desks. Turn to page 329, Mr. Jackson. We'll review the Kennedy assassination. He moved behind me. I could smell the horrible decayed meat odor, both sweet and nauseating. He was looking over my left shoulder as I flipped the pages. When I turned, his mouth was wide open, coming toward my neck. It was crowded with hundreds of cockroaches nesting in the back of his throat. Several dangled from his lips and chin like obscene ornaments. Without thinking, I plunged the tip of my ballpoint pen into his right eye, popping it open like a rotten grape. He grunted, a strange look of surprise on his face. Then he reached for me. I punched him in the face, driving the pen all the way into his eye socket and into his brain, smashing a few roaches on his face in the process. He collapsed next to my desk. Hmm, I guess Benny was right. Roaches erupted from his mouth, many streaming from his nostrils and ears. His sinus cavities must have been packed with their eggs and larvae. 
They scurried across the classroom floor, finding new hiding places in dark corners and cracks in the walls. Morrissey was finally gone. And I would never graduate. The guilty verdict and the death penalty didn't surprise me. The entire jury, even the judge, smelled like bad bacon. I guess you just can't win against the living dead. I'm innocent, of course. You can't murder somebody who's already dead. At worst, it was self-defense. My attorney went for the insanity angle, but I'm clearly not bonkers. The jury didn't buy the insanity plea either. When the jury's foreman announced the verdict, Miss Morrissey jumped to her feet and screamed, I hope you roast in hell, Bobby Jackson! I laughed until tears came to my eyes, because I finally got it. Even though Mr. Morrissey was dead, doubly, truly dead, he'd still managed to send me to detention. I just received the permanent detention. So here I sit in my cell in Smyrna Correctional, waiting. I'm now 25. My appeals have run out. My detention is about to start. Tonight they take me in. Here in Delaware, they execute death row guys with lethal injection. They'll strap me on that crucifix-shaped gurney, slam the IV into my vein, then boom, boom, out go the lights. They say it's just like going to sleep, but I don't believe it. Like I said, I really hate needles. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. My only regret is not being able to get Corey Feldman as a guest narrator for this story. That would have been perfect. Special thanks to listener Adam for doing the cover art for this and last week's story. Okay, let's double up on feedback again to try and catch up. Several weeks ago, we ran a science run amuck story called Exit, written by Jeff Carlson. This story didn't generate much of a response. People either weren't crazy for it or they were locked inside some high-security military compound. Delphed said, This story didn't do much for me. I kept expecting a twist that never came. The story definitely had potential, like if the main characters called out and it turned out that they were an experiment conducted by some scientist or a new drug. The story was a bit too slow pace for me. To contrast that, Gligstickclickoptalk said, I love the story. Yes, it was predictable, but it didn't pretend not to be. It was a well-told, poignant, cautionary tale. Indeed it was. Shoot first, eat rats later. The next week we ran All In by Peter Atwood, the story about playing poker for body parts. Hello Stephanie said she liked the story, saying the drabble, clearing the palate, was delightful and cute, and All In wasn't bad either. She said, I'm glad it had a happy ending, as happy an ending as a story about gambling for body parts can have, anyway. Camo Blamo said, This story is classic Drabblecast. There weren't any unexpected twists. It was simply strange. I'm not sure if I liked it, but I certainly did appreciate it. IG Wiz said, I like this story, but I agree that it was a bit predictable. The Queen High, Jack High plot device lost its drama for me as soon as he failed to make the flush draw. Overall, though, it was a pretty good story, and I really enjoyed the characterization. Hey, I'm a characterization slut. You had me at Fatso and Tan Suit. Characterization slut? Yowza. So I just started listening to a podcast novel by one of the faces in the Drabblecast forums and elsewhere on the net, writer Dave Thompson. I'm only up through the first two episodes, but it's really starting to hook me in. 
If you like fun stories about atypical superheroes, check them out. It's a well-known fact that an author's first novel is semi-autobiographical, usually offering a rare insight and perspective into a world we only barely recognize as our own. Often these novels are coming-of-age stories, and it doesn't take too long for the reader to believe that the story they're reading is only a few shades away from memoir. Take, for example, the new novel by D.K. Thompson, a complicated tale that deals with identity crisis, filled heroes, the bonds of friendship, tormented double lives, male insecurity, and... Well, superpowers. The Unbelievable Origin of Super Spiff and the Toothpick Kid, a podcast novel about wannabe superheroes by D.K. Thompson. And like most semi-autobiographical novels, it is 99% true. Well, I say 99%. 95. 80. Mostly true in a James Frey sort of way. This, make no mistake, is D.K. Thompson as you've never heard him before. Wait a minute. Who's D.K. Thompson? Who's D.K. Thompson? Me! I'm D.K. Thompson. Oh. I thought your name was Dave. Shh. That's my secret identity. Of course, just as some people believe the devil has all the best music, or at the very least owns the back catalogues, other people believe that children have all the best stories. But truly great stories transcend age and genre, and drag readers of all ages into a world filled with heroism, adventure, and daring do. And there's plenty of daring to be done, believe you me. Hey everyone, this is Dave Thompson, aka DK Thompson, the author. Drop on by my website, DaveShotFirst at dk-thompson.com, where you can download my very first podcast novel, The Unbelievable Origin of Super Spiff and the Toothpick Kid. God, that's a mouthful. Discover the golden rule of comic books, the secret behind Wayne Enterprises, poser superheroes, and why lame special editions of comics cost so freaking much. Hope to see you there, and don't forget to bring your costumes. Well, that's all for this week. Tune in next week and let the sci-fi convention festivities begin. If you enjoyed the show, consider dropping us a donation, either once or subscribe for $5 a month. You can find both options on our webpage at Drabblecast.org. It takes a pretty good amount of work to do the Drabblecast every week, and it ain't cheap. We like to pay our authors, and we have to pay for production costs, so every bit helps. As always, we use a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can share it with whoever you like, you just can't change it, and you can't sell it. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to mind your P's and Q's. The evening saunters to closing, the waitress turns chairs upside down, piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round.